This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. As CEO of Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Stanley Crook has been a pioneer in the development of antisense drugs and oversees one of the industry's largest and most advanced pipelines. Antisense drugs are compelling for rare diseases because of their ability to selectively target specific RNA sequences. These drugs, such as the company's treatment for spinal muscular atrophy, Spinraza, are transforming the outlook for rare disease patients. We spoke to Crook about Ionis's ability to succeed as a platform technology company, why he thinks gene therapies won't pose a threat to the company's platform, and why he sees the value of these therapies withstanding growing pricing pressures. Stan, thanks for joining us. Uh, well, it's uh, nice to uh, join you by phone and look forward to participating in the podcast. We're going to talk about Ionis, Antisense drugs, and, and the impact you've been able to have on rare diseases. Perhaps, though, you can begin with the science underlying your drug platforms. Can, can you explain what Antisense drugs are and, and how they work? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, just uh, as you know, background, of course, everyone is aware that genes carry the genetic information and that that's transcribed into messenger RNA, which is then used to make the proteins that do the work of the body. And uh, uh, the vast majority of drugs that are used today and uh, uh, are in development are, are, are drugs that are designed to bind to proteins either small molecules uh, or monoclonal antibodies and the like. Uh, with Antisense technology, we take highly chemically modified um, um, nucleotides, that is the building blocks of genes, the, what precisely what biology uses to uh, manage genetic information. We take those building blocks, modify them so that uh, we can put them together in strings of of nucleotides that are small, so they're called oligonucleotides. That means few. And then those uh, that provides a genetic zip code that we use to target the RNA that would make the protein that causes problems. Uh, and we can design antisense drugs to um, take advantage of a variety of cellular processes that can either cause the RNA to be degraded or modified so that it makes a different and better protein, or we can actually use antisense drugs today to actually increase the translation of proteins. And so uh, antisense technology 
the benefits of antisense technology are uh, that it's extraordinarily specific, the drugs are, uh, because we're using what evolution has defined as the most uh, uh, specific set of instructions that you can have in the cell, which is genetic information. It's broadly applicable. We can work on essentially any RNA in, in any cell. Um, and uh, and there are different mechanisms that we can use so that we can so it's very versatile. So that's the concept. Um, sounds pretty simple. Um, it took 25 years and many billions of dollars and a good many uh, disappointments and failures along the way to validate it and demonstrate that it works and to advance it to the place um, in which we have now quite a number of drugs that are on the market based on the technology. And uh, in our pipeline, I think we have 45 or 46 drugs in development uh, as we speak today, many of them for rare diseases, but uh, others are uh, for, uh, you know, the very large incidence diseases as well. On one hand, there's this simplicity and elegance to what you're doing, but these have been very challenging to develop as medicines. What are the challenges these drugs face? Is it a matter of how long they stay active in the body? Was it getting them to target where they need to go, or are, were there other issues that pose the, the development challenges? Well, um, to put it in context, this is a new platform for drug discovery. There aren't many new platforms for drug discovery that have been discovered, really, monoclonal antibodies and, and antisense and gene therapy, I suppose we'd add the third, as a third. Um, Monoclonal antibodies uh, took about 30 years and about $30 billion uh, before they were validated and shown to be broadly useful. Gene therapy has taken 40 years and uh, it now works in, at least in some cases, and probably about $40 billion. And antisense uh, was about 25 years and um, all in probably five or six billion. So the the first point to be made is if it takes 16 years on average to make a drug, it's going to take um, a lot longer than that and be a lot more expensive uh, to build a platform, and it has. So with Anisense, of course, we had to invent everything, and essentially all of the inventions took place at Ionis because the other companies that got started uh, lost their way or gave up or moved on and did other things. We persevered, so we had to invent a new chemistry. We had to invent a new way of thinking about how these drugs work. We had to invent means to manufacture the drugs. Uh, the conventional wisdom at the time we started is that we'd never be able to manufacture these drugs. We had to invent ways to evaluate whether they were working through an antisense mechanism. We had to then learn how they behaved in cells and then animals and then human beings. Um, and we had to work our way through multiple generations of chemistries as we continued to improve their performance um, and um, and accumulate, you know, uh, now, um, you know, tens of thousands of patients' uh, experiences with, with uh, antisense drugs of various kinds uh, before we um, could effectively validate the, the broad utility of the platform. So it is a, a beautifully elegant and simple concept, um, but the conversion of 
something that's simple and elegant from a biological concept into drugs that work and work broadly and can be given by essentially all routes of administration, that's that's a tough task and and it's a challenge and it's taken time and um, effort, perseverance, science, um, and uh, money, and some disappointments along the way. That That is the nature of what we do. You've now successfully brought a number of antisense drugs to market. Does this mean you've solve those issues, or does each indication present its own challenges? Do you now know how to make an antisense drug? We do. Um, We've solved all of the core challenges. Um, Of course, every new drug is a a new challenge. Um, But once again, if, if, if you compare it to small molecules, you'll see how dramatically different it is and and why it's so much more efficient. With small molecules, after 120 years of hard effort, we still don't really understand the precise forces that define where in a protein or to what protein small molecules bind. Um, and, uh, and the old adage, change a method, you change the drug, is absolutely true. So every new small molecule is a brand new adventure. There's very little to be learned from the previous molecule. And so that's why the among the many reasons why there are so many failures, why, you know, a small molecule, one out of a thousand or ten thousand small molecules that get made actually have a chance to become a drug. With antisense, within a chemical class, um, the, they are exactly the same except for the genetic zip code. So we do learn um, from the molecules we've made before. And so we um, know how uh, the next drug is going to behave generally. Uh, and so we we ask these drugs to do what they can do. We don't ask them to do what they can't do. And obviously, as we're looking at a different target and a new disease, then we have to address, is this the right target? Does, does, does it produce a benefit with sufficient safety and all that? But that's a tiny subset of the challenges that you face um, when you when you begin a new small molecule because the, the game changes every single time you change anything about a small molecule. And that's why uh, uh, it's so much more rapid for us to discover and develop antisense drugs, and it's so much more efficient. Our success rate to, from uh, when we make a development decision today to um, being able to ask an efficacy question in patients' phase two studies is a, a, a little better than 90%. You compare that to other platforms where the best you can hope for is 10% or less. So there are tremendous advantages now that we have, have developed the technology and shown how to use it. Um, uh, and, of course, we're taking advantage of, of those advantages to bring more benefit to more patients. How flexible uh, a therapeutic approach do you think this is? Can it be harnessed to treat virtually any monogenic disease? Or are, are there diseases that are going to be more appropriate for this approach because of delivery or other issues? Well, delivery is not an issue. Delivery has largely been is solved. These drugs are not large molecules. They distribute with blood. Um, and so we've known for a long time 
where they go, how long it takes them to get there, how many molecules per cell we have to have to have activity. Uh, in recent days, we've improved their performance of certain organs by targeting ligands that take them to the liver or the pancreas or something like that. But generally, they distribute very, very much like small molecules. Um, so, uh, of course, there are tissues where we get less drug, um, and in some places where uh, systemic administration we can't get drug into at all, such as the brain. Uh, and there, of course, we develop means for delivering the drugs to the brain intrathecally, that is, directly injecting into cerebral spinal fluid. For lung, where we get very little drug, of course, these drugs work beautifully by aerosol administration and, and, and so on. So the delivery is really um, not an issue. The diseases that um, antisense is um, unable to tackle today are very, very few. And to a large extent, they are diseases that are null mutations. That is, that you have a mutation that ablates the gene, that, ends, that causes the gene to be not um, producing any protein at all. Um, that's a replacement challenge, and antisense can't do that. Uh, on the other hand, the other genetic mutations that may produce uh, a protein that's uh, misprocessed mis, uh, because the RNA is misprocessed, or a protein that's um, um, mutated in some other way, most of those diseases we can tackle. But if you've got a, a rare disease that's due to a knockout of your gene, uh, then the challenge, then then that protein has to be replaced, um, and and so that's more the province of gene therapy. I'd like to talk about Spinraza, which I, I think people forget is <laughs> an ionist drug since it's marketed by Biogen. But for listeners not familiar with spinal muscular atrophy, can, can you explain? what that is, the progression of the disease, and, and what the prognosis was for a patient prior to Spinraza. Uh, spinal muscular atrophy is, as the name suggests, a problem in the spinal column in the brain that results in atrophy of the muscles. It um, uh, results from um, the loss of a gene, um, called SMN1. SMN1 produces a protein that's required to form junctions between nerve ends and muscles. Uh, and if you can't form that junction between nerve ends and muscles where the electrical signal gets transmitted, then effectively you've denervated that muscle. So if you think of what happens to muscles when someone's had a spinal, score, spinal cord transection or uh, you know, uh, their spinal cord crushed, uh, that's a denervation injury. And so what you have with SMA is total body denervation of muscles, which is a catastrophic event. Fortunately, uh, just by luck, um, in, in the process of evolution, the SMN1 gene was duplicated and that's the SMN2 gene. And unfortunately, the SMN2 gene has a mutation in it that means that the RNA that's made is faulty. 
and it's not processed correctly so that it can give you a, a correct protein, the SMN protein. What Spinraza does is corrects that deficiency at the RNA level, and that results then in production of um, theoretical maximum amounts of, of that protein. And we've shown that in remarkable studies actually in human beings, in the motor um, uh, neuron cells that, that have to have that protein to work. Um, so um, SMA um, went for many, many hundreds, thousands of years with uh, the inability to be diagnosed. I think the gene was discovered, SMN1 gene, in 2000. Um, and then, or two, yeah, I think that's right. And then shortly thereafter, the second gene was discovered. And then some years later, the fact that the, that gene was mutated was discovered. So the discoveries around SMA have come very rapidly, and we've been able to convert those discoveries to the drug. And what has that drug that's, meant to patients? Well, everything. Um, so there are different gradations of severity. Uh, what has been called SMN type 1 is the most severe form of the disease. It's also the most common. And uh, about 50% of babies born with type 1 SMA um, are dead by six months, or they have to be on a, a, uh, a permanent respirator. They never breathe on their own. These babies never sit, never walk. Um, they are bright, lovely, engaging babies, and they die. And they die a respiratory death. They suffocate. Um, there is very little that I can imagine that's more heartbreaking. Uh, the less severe form of the disease is still awful, um, or was, um, and that would be called type 2. Uh, and these uh, babies um, may... Um, sit. They may even crawl and walk a bit, but as they age, they get weaker and weaker. And so typically, um, they get to the place where they simply can't move any muscle at all. Um, they're, of course, wheelchair, wheelchair fast. Um, but um, I remember a patient telling me that if, if she could just pick up a pencil, it would be uh, a great advance. Um, so it's a terrible disease. And Spinraza, in a single step, with uh, no side effects, Spinraza is given about every four months directly into the spinal fluid, so it's an, an injection in the spinal column, uh, changed the course of the disease entirely. Um, we now have six or seven, maybe, years of experience with Spinraza. Um, and what we know is that if we treat infants early, that is, before they're symptomatic, which is fairly straightforward to do because the diagnosis is easy now, um, almost all these infants grow like normal children. Um, they're achieving motor milestones and mental milestones and emotional milestones just like a normal child, which is astonishing. Um, and uh, for the patients that have the less severe form of disease, um, we uh, can convert many of them to being able to walk 
they all improve, um, and they improve, improve markedly. And stunningly, even now, six or seven years out, we haven't reached the maximum benefit. Um, uh, the longer we treat, the better these patients get. So uh, Spinraza has changed um, what was a, a disease of death and despair to life and 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 stronger and better life. And uh, so it is a miracle drug. Um, I've been at this business for a long time. I think I'm I can lay claim to having led the development of 24 drugs or so that are on the market. Um, and if I'd only done Spinraza, that would be more than enough for me for my career. So it's a magical drug. There's a, a good chance we're going to see a gene therapy approved for SMA next month. Is there a future for this therapeutic approach, or will it ultimately be replaced by gene therapies? <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, um, I think, um, uh, of course, it's great. Uh, the, the more more medicines for these patients, the better. Um, but uh, if you think about gene therapy, the plus is that it lasts a long time, although it doesn't last a lifetime, and there's no evidence that that you won't have to redose. Um, now you may have to, you may be able to go a year or two. We'll see. Um, but you must treat very, you must treat the infants, and then retreatment is not proven, and it's going to be very difficult because of kind of viral titers that are used to get the drug in. I think is likely to prove very, very difficult with in terms of antibodies and so on. So we we believe Spinraza will be standard of care for the foreseeable future. There are also small molecules in development that are non-specific agents that affect splicing in general. So the big issue with those drugs will 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 we'll have to see how effective they are and how safe they are over the long haul. Uh, but Spinraza is. Um, it's a drug where um, a parent with a baby who could die any day knows today for sure that we can give Spinraza to that baby and have them live and generally be healthy. Uh, that 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 is a that's that's Spinraza's um, place, and we're glad to be the leaders. We're leaders in lots of therapeutic areas, and lots of companies follow us. We'd rather be the leaders. One of the things I find particularly compelling about Ionis is that it's a platform company that succeeded as a platform company. I'd argue most platform companies transform into drug development companies or they get acquired for a particular molecule and these platforms seem to fade away. Why do you think Ionis has been successful as a platform company? Well, um, uh, we've had a strategy from day one. It's a strategy that I developed. And my goal was to create antisense technology. And if it worked, I knew it would be much more efficient. And if, if it were, then take advantage of that efficiency to build a different kind of business model and a different culture. Because I think the fully integrated company is a detriment to in innovation. Um, and so our, our business model focuses on staying small, staying simple, focused on the science, the patient, and the medicine, and then finding the best organization to commercialize 
our drugs. In some cases, that's commercial affiliates that we found, like uh, Axia, and in other cases, it's other companies like Biogen for Spinraza. So the, we treat the, the drugs as the things that matter, not the organization, uh, not the development or commercial organization that they're going into. And we think that's going to lead to a much more prolonged level of innovation. And the, and, and the medicines that we make will be served best because we're trying to find the optimal organization to commercialize them, not trying to force fit them into any, uh, you know, the same organization over and over again. And we think the culture is unique as well um, in the commitment to the science and the patient uh, that we have, and we want to preserve that, and we think that's better preserved by focusing on on those activities only within the core of the company and remaining small and simple. And we're proud of that. Uh, all three of these uh, efforts were experiments, as I look at it, and we think they're all all successful, and we hope uh, that others learn from the lesson that we we are learning. Um, that is that this is working, and that more patients will benefit because not just of the technology, but the business model and the culture. We've stayed the course, and we've been lucky. <laughs> we've been able to raise the money, and and the times that there have been. Uh, Folks interested in acquiring us, we've found solutions that uh, that uh, um, met their needs and met our desire to stay independent because we think being independent, we can do more good. One of the challenges with the business model is that you can find yourself at the mercy of partners whose priorities may differ from your own or have their own priorities change. How have you been able to keep your interests aligned with your partners? Um, well, uh, we've gotten better at it over years. Um, and today we don't do partnerships for money. In the past, we had to do partnerships for money. Today we do it strategically. We look at a partner and we look at the drug first and ask, is this a drug that we should commercialize through one of our affiliates? Or should we work with a partner who has the skill, scale, and expertise that we think it needs? And then we pick our partners very judiciously. We tend to do repeat business with partners that we've been successful with, like Biogen and um, AstraZeneca and the like, Roche. Um, so um, uh, no system is perfect. Uh, everything will have its downsides. And if we make a mistake with a partner, uh, then, then you know, that, that, that's a problem. That happens. But it happens very rarely these days. I mean, I think we've been as successful at partnering as any company in biotech ever. And that experience then provides a lot of insights into what to look for and how to pick the best partner. And, of course, being in the position of having what everybody wants um, makes it a very much a seller's market for us. Uh, and, of course, that helps, too. Ionis is still a platform company, but you did launch Axia. What was the thinking in doing this, and, and how do the two companies interact? Well, we own about 75% of Axia, and, but it has a single mission, and that is to commercialize the drugs that we have given them. Uh, and that's a different mission. And so they have a different organization, a different business, and a different culture, similar but different, with a different focus. 
Um, we have, of course, substantial board representation, and we consolidate their financials, so we also control the financials. On the other hand, they're independent enough that they can do what they think is best in terms of commercializing the medicines that we have. And the medicines that we've uh, provided them uh, are medicines that uh, can be um, commercialized via a small information providing sales force, such as is happening with TechSeti and WayLibra, um, and then other medicines that uh, you know are going to be licensed to um, a larger companies like our APOA medicine, which we expect Novartis to exercise this option here very shortly, uh, because those drugs require extremely large-scale uh, development commercial activities, and we don't think we should reinvent those wheels. We don't. We think there are plenty of those resources available, and we should spend our money making more drugs for more patients faster. As you alluded to earlier, Ionis has a, a very robust pipeline. This includes a therapy and development to treat the neurodegenerative condition, Huntington's disease, which your partner Roche is developing. What do we know about this to date, and when might Roche be in a position to apply for an approval if all goes well? Well, we know we are targeting the cause of the disease, so that's critical. That's the first time that's been done. Um, and the initial uh, information from the first clinical trial are very encouraging. We have great tolerability and safety, uh, of course. Uh, that's sort of a given uh, with these drugs now. Um, we have very significant target reduction that we can see. Uh, and preliminary evidence of benefit. Uh, with Huntington's, of course, the course of the disease is relatively slow, so um, it's a little early to call victory, but we think, uh, we, we think all the evidence uh, points to the fact that this could be uh, a Spinraza quality breakthrough in the treatment of this disease as well. The price of these therapies is coming under increasing scrutiny. We've seen efforts to develop new pricing models, particularly around the some of the one-time treatments. Do you see pricing pressures challenging the sustainability of your therapies? And is the case to payers a value argument, or are they seeking something else today? I, I don't think pricing is going to be an issue for us. Um, I think drugs should be priced for value. I think the real problem is that medicines haven't been priced for value. Um, um, and so our focus is to create the maximum value for the patients who need it the most and then charge for that value. Now, we don't price. Axia prices Tegsetti, Biogen priced um, uh, Spinraza, but I support their decisions. Uh, and, and I think the evidence that the value exceeds the cost is is the fact that Spinraza is approved and priced around the world, generally in the same range as the U.S. price, um, and that is there's been no difficulty in any pricing group uh, to get uh, Spinraza priced. I think where the industry is wrong and has been wrong for many many years and gets in trouble is when it raises prices or charges prices that are unjustified by the value the drug brings. Um, similarly with Huntington's, uh, the value is almost unmeasurable or immeasurable. Our SOD1 drug, which we are really excited about for ALS, is another one of those 
extraordinary value drugs that we believe, APOA, you know, not a rare disease, but it is a drug that is unique that I think is desperately needed for uh, reducing residual cardiovascular risk in patients will be priced for the value it brings. So we're committed to value pricing. Um, and we want our partners to price for the value that the drugs bring. And our job is to focus on creating drugs that have the maximum value to bring the greatest value to the patients who need them the most. I think if we do that, people generally will understand um, that this does cost money and we're responsible to our shareholders to make money. And if we don't make money, we won't make more drugs. Um, and so I think... In a sense, then, pricing for value is, is a, is a, is, is a fair price. If you can measure the value and you can price for it, then I think you're treating uh, patients fairly. Stanley Crook, CEO of Ionis Pharmaceuticals. Stanley, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure and uh, uh, look forward to hearing it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.